Welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Tuesday, January 30th. I'm Denise, your reader. Our first article is from the front page. Mystery of Dead Baby Found in 1996 Now Asks Why. Authorities and DNA experts have been sleuthing for two years to find parents. By Trish Mahaffey. The Gazette, nearly 30 years after a farmer near Lisbon discovered a dead infant in his barn, puzzling law enforcement for decades in trying to figure out who the newborn baby was and how she got there. New genealogical tests revealed the baby was his great-granddaughter. Cedar County Sheriff Warren Wethington told the Gazette on Monday, that his office and the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation have been working on the 1996 cold case for two years after receiving genetic genealogical results that identified the parents, who were both teens at the time. Claire Wilson lived on the farm with his son, Tim. Tim's wife, Debbie, and their son, Luke, who was 15 at the time. Claire Wilson found the infant wrapped in a plastic shopping bag and concealed in a garbage bag the morning of November 10, 1996, in the barn at 14 Highway 30, about a mile east of Lisbon. The barn was used to store machinery. And there's a picture of the barn that was uh, used when the discovery was made in November 1996. It still stands along Highway 30, east of Lisbon. The girl, known all this time as Baby Jane Lincoln, is buried at County Home Cemetery in rural Cedar County near Tipton. The gravesite for Baby Jane Lincoln is seen is seen Monday at County Home Cemetery in rural Cedar County near Tipton. Flowers, a plastic rabbit, and other items were placed next to the marker, and there's a picture of the gravestone. The body of the dead baby was found in November 1996 in a barn at the homestead east of Lisbon. The girl was named by investigators after a historic name of Highway 30, the Lincoln Highway. After more than 27 years, DNA was used to identify the parents of the newborn. The DCI issued a news release Saturday that, after all these years, finally revealed the parents' identities, Luke Dean Wilson and Samantha Light Hope. He was 15 and she was 16 at the time, and both are now 43. The DCI asked people who had information about the case to come forward and call the Cedar County Sheriff's Office at 563-886-2121. Right now we're having trouble proving if the child was born alive or not, Wellington said. An autopsy at the time concluded that the baby was alive when she was born, but that method now is not considered reliable. Officials are now trying to determine whether the baby was born dead or was abandoned alive and died of exposure. I'm hoping it didn't happen that way, Wethington said. I hope it just I hope it was just two kids who were scared and didn't know what to do. Luke Wilson, who still lives in the area, has cooperated with authorities. Wethington Wethington said, but Light Hope, who lives out of state, hasn't been cooperative, he said. Attempts Monday by the Gazette to reach the two were unsuccessful. As part of a cold case grant received in 2010, DNA testing was conducted on a sample from the baby, and a genealogist with the DNA analysis company helped investigators create family trees to narrow down possible parents, Wethington said. Luke Wilson provided a DNA sample, 
but in order to match Light Hope, investigators had to use DNA from a sibling. Wethington said, if the teens would have come forward at the time, the mystery wouldn't have affected so many lives. Hopefully, now the baby will be given a proper name, he said. Since shortly after her tiny body was discovered, the girl was known only as Baby Jane Lincoln, since the barn she found was found in was located on the old Lincoln Highway. The infant was buried near Tipton, and the former sheriff took up a collection for a headstone. That sheriff, Keith Whitlatch, said Monday that investigators didn't have any suspects when the baby was found, but suspected she might have been left by someone from out of town who was passing through. Frank Hubner, who was the pastor of the Cedar Street Baptist Church in Tipton at the time the infant was found and officiated her funeral, said Monday he wanted the baby's parents to know that God loves them as much as he loves their daughter. What would have been the circumstances that people would have been so desperate that they would have done something like that, Hubner asked. I think that was the real question that a lot of the people, at least in my church, had on their minds. There were there are resources and there are places people can go. Hubner didn't know the Wilson family, but is asked to perform the funeral by the director of the funeral home, whom was a good friend. It was just a complete shock and a mystery. Nothing was ever made public as far as what they suspected, Hubner said. Cedar Rapids orders all West Hill apartment residents to vacate. Structural issues force out tenants of all five buildings by Marissa Payne. All residents of West Hill Village Apartments in northwest Cedar Rapids now have been ordered to leave their homes to allow for repairs that an engineer has warned are needed to address structural issues that pose a potential threat to their safety. The city has ordered tenants of two more of the five buildings in the complex on Seminole Avenue Northwest, the 1615 and 1625 buildings, to vacate the properties by February 29th. This comes after Waterloo-based EPM Iowa, the private property management company, informed tenants they must leave the other three properties after an engineer flags structural issues in the buildings, including cracks in the drywall and floor unevenness that may lead to a potential structural failure. EPM Iowa has not responded to a request for comment. Residents of the first three buildings at 1610, 1620, and 1630 Seminole Avenue Northwest have until the end of Wednesday to leave. A structural engineer identified issues including cracks in the drywall of the stairwells suggesting there was significant lateral movement in the structure, most likely related to the 2020 derecho damage, vertical cracks in the drywall above sliding doors, with about 30% of the apartment showing stress cracks on the drywall above the floors and floor joists punching through the drywall ceiling, and floor unevenness, revealing a serious issue that can lead to a potential structural failure as the interior wall is placed directly on a floor decking without structural support below it and a sagging ceiling in one unit. And a termite issue in the 1620 building, under city code, the owner of the owner's authority agency is responsible for keeping properties with notices of violation and code provisions in compliance. Issues jeopardize its structural integrity. In a report dated 
January 12th from structural engineer Natalia V. Hunt with Cedar Rapids-based Apex Structural, Hunt said an inspection of 1615 and 1625 buildings completed with the apartment complex maintenance manager and the city official found the conditions of both buildings are like the other buildings in the complex. The 1625 property did not have uneven floors, Hunt wrote, but there are other issues present throughout the building that jeopardize the structural integrity. This correspondence was shared with the Cedar Rapids Building Services Department January 25th, at which point staff notified the property owner that the 1615 and 1625 buildings must be evacuated. Hunt recommended residents leave within 30 to 60 days. The letter from building services staff said the owner has been working with the structural engineer for a recommended repair plan, including the floor joists, floor unevenness, sagging ceilings, extensive cracking of ceilings and walls, and termite damage. The letter was signed by Building Services Director Kevin Chiabati and Code Enforcement Manager Greg Bulo. According to the Building Services Department, the department provided emergency resource guides for the property owner to provide to the tenants of the 1615 and 1625 buildings, as done for the previous buildings, including social service agency contacts, emergency housing contacts, and legal aid resources. City staff have encouraged the owner and the private property management company to help tenants where possible. Residents seeking assistance may contact Waypoint's housing services team at 319-366-7999. Millions of cicadas will flood eastern Iowa this spring. Two broods will emerge at the same time for the first time in 200 years by Brittany Miller. The chorus of cicadas, a cacophony of rhythmic zings and high-pitched chirps, is a normal part of Iowa's summer soundtrack. This year, their song may grow even louder when more members join the ensemble. For the first time in more than 200 years, two broods of periodical cicadas will emerge from Iowa soils and beyond, at the same time, said Zach Shum, an ins- insect diagnostician at Iowa State University's Plant and Insect Diagnostic Clinic. This is a really weird phenomenon that we only get to see a few times in our lives, he said. It's like seeing a really cool comet in space that you only get to see every 70 years. Cicadas are insects with long, beak-like sheaths used to feed on plants. They can grow up to two inches long, and males are known for their loud mating calls. Annual cicadas can be spotted every year. Periodical cicadas, on the other hand, come in waves. Young cicadas, called nymphs, feed on roots and organic material underground for 13 or 17 years, depending on the species and their life cycle. Environmental cues, such as soil temperature, alert them when it's time to emerge in mass droves and reproduce above ground. Once free from the earth's periodical cicadas, will then mate and lay eggs in tree twigs and stems. The nymphs that hatch, that hatch will then burrow underground and start the cycle again. The eastern part of the United States is the only region of the entire world that has these periodical cicadas, Shum said. We're quite lucky to experience it. Periodical cicadas are split into different broods depending on their region and emergence timing. Iowa will see two broods emerge this spring when soil temperatures get above the mid-60s. 
Brood 13, a 17-year brood that stretches from eastern Iowa into southern Wisconsin and northern Illinois, and Brood 19, a 13-year brood that can be found from southeastern Iowa down into Louisiana and across southeastern United States. Eastern Iowa, particularly southeast Iowa, would experience both broods this year as well as annual cicadas, Shum said. Actual distributions vary year to year, though, and are hard to predict. If you're in the right area, you can see and experience millions upon millions of cicadas. Certain areas are definitely going to be drowned out by the noise, he said. Other areas, even within the range, you might not really find many at all but odds are you're probably going to see or notice some. Cicadas don't harm humans or agricultural crops. Laying their eggs in trees can lead to flagging when the tips of the branches are damaged and leaves turn brown. Flagging doesn't typically cause long-term harm to otherwise healthy trees, but if the plants are already affected by drought or disease, it can increase the risk of tree death, some said. Cicada abundance will likely peak in Iowa around May. The adult insects live only four to six weeks, their mating calls reverberating through the region until they lay their eggs. Those two broods aren't going to align again for another couple hundred years, Shum said. Because they're harmless and they're not really going to hurt anything, it's better to just enjoy it and observe it and be fascinated by it. Brittany J. Miller is the Energy and Environment Reporter for the Gazette and a core member of the Report for Iowa, a national service program that places journalists in local newsrooms to report undercovered issues. From Iowa Today, poet plants sign on to summit route, but okay from regulators in Iowa would come later after action on pipeline permit by Eric Jordan. Poet, P-O-E-T, The world's largest ethanol producer announced Monday it would link its ethanol plants in Iowa and South Dakota to Summit Carbon Solutions' proposed carbon dioxide pipeline. Poet previously was planning to be connected to the Navigator Heartland Greenway, another CO2 pipeline, but that project died in October amid challenges getting regulator approval in Illinois and South Dakota. Poet, based in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, has 34 bioprocessing facilities across the Midwest, including 12 in Iowa. Because Poet's Iowa plants were not on Summit's original route, they won't be a part of Summit's permit application, now under review by the Iowa Utilities Board. Those plants would be included in future application, the companies announced in a joint statement Monday, but Poet's five South Dakota plants would be included in the upcoming permit application in that state. This addition will facilitate the capture, transportation, and permanent storage of 4.7 million metric tons of CO2 annually from the 17 bioprocessing Poet plants, the news release said. Summit has proposed a 2,000-mile $5 billion pipeline that would transport CO2 to an underground sequestration station in North Dakota. The Iowa Utilities Board right now is considering a permit for the 680 miles the pipeline would cross in Iowa. Summit has said it has voluntary easements on about three-quarters of the Iowa Code, the Iowa Capital Dispatch reported, but still would need the board to grant eminent domain rights to force easements on the rest of the parcels. Holdouts 
and other critics oppose eminent domain and worry about the safety of transporting compressed CO2 underground. There is no timeline for when the state board must decide on Summit's permit. Biofuels report supporters say CO2 pipelines are critical to the industry's survival. As the world seeks low-carbon energy solutions, carbon capture ensures that ag-based biofuels will remain competitive for decades to come. Poet founder and CEO Jeff Bruin said in a statement, This is a tremendous opportunity to bring value to farmers, bioethanol producers, and rural communities and counties, in particular states, and I believe it will unleash even more opportunities for ag and bioprocessing in the future. Lacking in Iowa's bid to add psychiatrists, trainers, UIHC official suggests lawmakers amend the loan repayment program by Tom Barton. A lack of board-certified physicians needed to provide supervision, training, and evaluation is hampering efforts by University of Iowa Healthcare to staff residency sites under a state-funded psychiatry residency program created by lawmakers to address a severe shortage of mental health professionals in the state. Lawmakers passed and Governor Tim Kim Reynolds signed a multi-million dollar public health bill in 2022 that included funding for up to 12 additional positions for each residency class at the university to work at five designated state facilities pending approval by the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education. Legislators last year amended the law to create nine psychiatric residencies and two psychiatric fellowships to be completed by medical school graduates in conjunction with the State Department of Health and Human Services. The legislation provided $100,000 annually for each residency and $150,000 annually for each fellowship to cover the cost of training, starting with the current fiscal year that began, began in July 1. Once approved, participating residents would compete, complete a portion of their training at state mental health institutes in Cherokee and Independence, serving people with serious mental illness. The Iowa State Resource Center in Woodward, serving individuals with intellectual disabilities. The Iowa Medical and Classification Center at Oakdale, a medium security correctional facility. And the Iowa State Training Center in Eldora, serving adolescents with a history of criminal justice involvement. However, only two of the five sites have been accredited, as the others lack required board-certified psychiatrists to give supervision, training, and evaluation of residents, Jody Tate, clinical professor of psychiatry and vice chair for education at the UI, recently told lawmakers. And those psychiatrists at the sites have heavy clinical loads, Tate said. Citing a need to be creative for undertaking the expansion, it's not going to be a sprint, it's going to be a marathon, Tate said. In its efforts to address barriers in accreditation, UIHC created elective rotations at four sites and added board-certified psychiatrists at the state training school in Eldora by using telepsychiatry through a collaboration with Health and Human Services to provide supervision for resident-providing child and adolescent psychiatric care. Tate said UIHC also is collaborating with rural clinics to expand telepsychiatry to deliver outpatient care in underserved areas, starting with hospitals and clinics in Washington and Van Buren counties. 
Outpatient care is a required component for psychiatry residency training programs. UIHC also created a new one- to two-year public psychiatry fellowship for psychiatrists who have completed an accredited psychiatric residency training and who are interested in pursuing a career working with individuals who have complex health needs and or underserved populations. Fellows can practice independently and supervise residents addressing the accreditation challenges, Tate said. However, UIHC received only one applicant who later declined the offer to participate. Tate said UIHC has seen unexpected interest from residents wishing to participate in the fellowship during their fourth year of residency, but doesn't address the challenges UIHC faces meeting accreditation standards. What I worry about is recruiting, getting psychiatrists at these sites to be able to expand more and have more learners at those sites, she told lawmakers. Tate suggested legislators amend eligibility requirements under the Rural Iowa Primary Care Loan Repayment Program established to address critical doctor shortages in rural communities to include those attending a a residency program in Iowa in addition to medical school. The program provides loan repayment incentives up to $200,000 to individuals who practice in specified locations for up to five years. Tate said she would help with recruitment, calling the current 60% retention rate of UIHC-trained psychiatrists changes to loan repayment requirements and state funding to increase psychiatric residents as a winning combination. I think we're getting momentum, and I think we're going to get there, she told lawmakers. There were 212 licensed psychiatrists practicing in the state in 2021, down from 236 in 2012, according to Iowa Health Professions Tracking Center at the UI Carver College of Medicine. And 66% of Iowa psychiatrists work in Johnson, Lynn, and Polk counties. 73 of Iowa's 99 counties do not have a psychiatrist. I agree that loan repayment always helps with recruiting physicians in the state. So if there's a chance to expand our loan repayment program, I think that would help with recruiting physicians to the state, said Representative Ann Meyer, Republican Fort Dodge, chair of the House Health and Human Services Committee. Meyer suggested the possibility of giving priority to Iowa students, but opening it up to graduates in surrounding states if we're not filling enough spots. It's interesting we don't have all of these residency spots filled because we don't have enough trainers, she said. From the Insight page, guest editorial Abbott believes he's head of a country. It's not often that you see a U.S. Supreme Court dissent cited in an official document that purports to lay out a legal rationale for taking action. After all, while the dissents are valuable for following the legal reasoning, they are pointedly not law. That's no issue for Texas Governor Greg Abbott. In a release, the governor cited Justice Antonin Scalia's dissent in the case of Arizona the United States, the result of that state's infamous SB 1070, a prosecutor to Abbott's own efforts to subvert the federal government's control over immigration in arguing that the Constitution acknowledges the state's sovereign interest in protecting their borders. 
That was not the high court's decision, and in fact, the court slapped down Arizona's attempt to preempt federal powers on immigration. Abbott knows this, and we're not the only ones to have noticed the first line about the federal government having supposedly broken the compact between the United States and the states closely echoes language used by secessionist states before the Civil War. Abbott goes heavily heavy on militaristic language, arguing that he is invoking his state's right to self-defense and restating he has officially declared the state under invasion, an invasion that the Biden administration has done nothing about. All this in response to a simple Supreme Court ruling affirming that federal border patrol agents were allowed to cut through concertina wire deploy, deployed, probably illegally, by state personnel. Abbott's entire reasoning is firmly rooted in obvious falsehoods. The asylum seekers entering the country are doing so pursuant to a flawed but existing legal mechanism. The Biden administration has maintained or reinstated several Trump-era border restrictions and so on. The governor doesn't really care about the facts. This is about saber-rattling. This is the language of a zealot, someone who truly was not joking when he recently lamented to an interviewer that the state of Texas could not simply murder migrants. It's also a direct challenge to federal authority. So, President Joe Biden, call his bluff. If Abbott thinks this is the National Guard units of our Texas' own troops, federalize them. If he cares little for the Fed's distribution to law enforcement, withhold public safety grants. If the governor believes that the Supreme Court dissents are equal to decisions, begin offering federally supported abortion services in the state. Let's see who laughs last. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Tuesday, January 30th on IRIS. Now we turn to today's obituaries. Mark Bader, 61, of Monticello, died suddenly at his home Sunday, January 28, 2024. Funeral services will be held 10.30 a.m. Thursday, February 1, 2024, at the Peace United Church of Christ. Pastor Frank Shepherd will officiate at the services. Friends may call from 4 to 7 p.m. Wednesday at the Gauche Funeral Home, Monticello. David Rogers, Marion. A memorial service will be held at 11 a.m. Saturday, February 3, 2024, at Calvary Community Church, 327 35th Street Northeast, Cedar Rapids. Sharon Ann McLaughlin, 78, of Swisher, Iowa, passed away Sunday, January 28, 2024, at Mercy Medical Center in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Visitation, 4 to 7 p.m., Wednesday, January 31, 2024, at Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home, Cedar Rapids. Funeral service, 11 a.m., February 1, 2024, at the funeral home. Burial, Linwood Cemetery, Cedar Rapids. Mike Wheels Devlin, 65, of Cedar Rapids, passed away peacefully on Thursday, January 25, 2024, at Mercy Medical Center, surrounded by his entire family. A celebration of life service will be held from noon to 6 p.m. Saturday, February 10th at the Moose Lodge, 1820 West Post Road, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, 52404. Attendees are encouraged to dress casually. Dennis Doc James Whitsell, 78, of Chelsea, passed away 
January 25, 2024. Funeral service is 11 o'clock a.m. Friday, February 2nd, 2024 at the First Federal Church, Belle Plaine. Burial will take place at Oak Hill Cemetery, Belle Plaine. Visitation is 9 to 11 a.m. Friday, February 2nd at the church. Memorials may be directed to the family. Denny Charles Halverson of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, passed away on Christmas Eve, December 24, 2023, at Mercy Hospital in Cedar Rapids after a short battle with a COVID-induced respiratory illness. He was 94. A celebration of life for friends and family will be held from 1 to 4 p.m., April 27, 2024, at the Ellis Golf Course Clubhouse in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. In lieu of flowers, please donate to the Cedar Valley Humane Society in Denny's honor. Keith Tish, 85, of rural Deep River, passed away Saturday evening, January 27, at the Highland Ridge Care Center in Williamsburg. Funeral services will begin at 10.30 a.m. Wednesday, January 31st, 2024 at the Gibson Presbyterian Church. Burial will be held in the 16 Cemetery near Thornburg. Visitation will begin after 12 p.m. Tuesday, January 30th, 2024 at the Holland Coble Funeral Home in Montezuma with a family present from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. In lieu of flowers, memorial contributions may be made to the Gibson Presbyterian Church or Highland Ridge Care Center in Williamsburg. Holland Coble Funeral Home of Montezuma is in charge of arrangements. Lois Ann Brooks, 79, of Centerpoint, Iowa, passed away on January 25, 2024, at Brookdale, Muirville, assisted living in Dublin, Ohio. The family will greet friends from 10 to 11 a.m. on Friday, February 9, 2024, at St. John Lutheran Church, located at 316 Vine Street in Centerpoint. A funeral service will follow at 11 a.m. with Reverend Thomas C. Van Hemert officiating. Burial will follow the service at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Services of Cedar Rapids is assisting the family with arrangements. Memorials in Lois's memory may be directed to the Alzheimer's Associate Foundation. And now in sports. Cedar Rapids Prairie captured the team title at the Mississippi Valley Conference Supermeet at Dubuque Senior on Saturday. The Hawks scored 201.5 points, topping Class 3A 6th-ranked Linmar by 7.5 points. Iowa City West was third with 191. Number 7, Iowa City High, 173, and Cedar Rapids Xavier, 172, rounded out the top five. Dylan Munson, 106, was Prairie's lone champion, but he was one of four finalists. Tyler Lee, at 132, Aiden Clark, 138, and 157-pounder Wyatt Vlasic earned runner-up finishes. Linmar crowned four champions. Malik Debo, 120, Nate Fish, 126, top-ranked 144-pounder Kane Naktiboran, and Grant Cress at 175 won titles. Iowa City High's Kale Seaton, 132, Kale Kurtz, 138, and 150-pounder 
Kale Voinvich, who committed to wrestling for Iowa, all won conference crowns. Decora claimed the team title at the Iowa Girls High School Athletic Union Region Tournament Friday. The Vikings scored 254 points, beating runner-up and host Mason City by 49. Williamsburg was third with 194. Decora positioned itself for a run at a state title this week, qualifying nine of the two-day event start, starting Thursday at Extreme Arena in Coralville. Naomi Simon, 170, and Cameron Steins at 190 won titles for the Vikings, who had seven finalists. Defending state champion and Iowa co- commit, Simon is 43-0. and Boys basketball, Kennedy solidifies number one spot in Class 4A rankings. Cougars posted impressive 60-43 win Saturday over defending 4A state champion West Des Moines Valley. There's Cedar Rapids Kennedy, then there's everyone else right now in Class 4A boys basketball. The Cougars solidified their hold on the top spot in the class in its Iowa High School Athletic Association 4A poll with a convincing win Saturday over fourth-ranked West Des Moines Valley as part of the MVC CIML showdown at Waukee. Kennedy, 14-0, which has won 34 consecutive regular season games, got 18 points from Trevon Krumrai and held Valley to 37.5% in a 60-43 victory. Defending 4A champion Valley, 11-4, played without all-state guard Curtis Stinson Jr., who's been out for multiple weeks with a hip injury. Valley actually moved from fourth to third despite the loss. Iowa City West, 12-1, is second in this week's 4A rankings, coming off a two-point win Saturday over Cedar Falls, which is ranked ninth. The big mover in Sioux is Sioux City East, 15-2, which picked up a huge 68-53 win Saturday at Waukee. The Warriors, 12-5, dropped from third to fifth. The other three numbers, one team remained the same, also with some shuffling after that in each class. Clear Lake, 13-0, is the top-ranked team in Class 3A. West Lyon, 16-0 in 2A, and Bellevue Marquette, 180 in Iowa in 1A. The top five remained identical in 3A with Solon, 15-0, fourth, and Decora, 14-1, fifth. Despite a loss to Solon, Marion, 10-4, stayed at number eight in the class. Good wins over Cascade and Maquoketa inched Monticello, 14-1, up from 7th to 5th in Class 2A. Two losses dropped Iowa City Regina from 10th to out of the rankings. In Class 1A, North Lynn, 15-1, slipped from 2nd to 3rd despite not losing. Madrid, 14-2, moved up from 4th to 2nd after a three-week win. The Tigers play a 2A heavy schedule. Kyoto, 16-0, also decreased one place from 5th to 6th despite not losing. In a big game this week, North Lynn plays Friday night at number 1 Bellevue Marquette. In girls' basketball area scores, Calamus Wheatland, 58, Lisbon, 28. Conrad, BCLUW, 54, Belle Plaine, 22. Edgewood-Colesburg, 57, Albernet, 40. 
Lone Tree, 56, and Wapolo, 39. Mid Prairie, 47, against Washington's, 32. Union Community, 47, with South Tama, 25. Wapsie Valley, 43, over Tripoli, 21. All other scores were late in reporting. In boys swimming, the all-conference Mississippi Valley Conference All-Division first team in the 200 medley relay, Dubuque Sr., William Fry, Zach Heyer, Jarrett Herber, Walter Freund. In the 200 free, John Butler, Cedar Falls, Liam McGrain, Cedar Falls. In the 200 IM, Cole Wilson, Cedar Falls, Zach Heyer, Dubuque Sr. In the 50 free, Kieran DeGroot, Cedar Falls, Jarrett Herber, Dubuque Sr. In the 100 fly, William Fry, Dubuque Sr., Jarrett Herber, Dubuque Sr. In the 100 free, John Butler, Cedar Falls, Sam Weaver, Cedar Falls. In the 500 free, Liam McGrain, Cedar Falls, Keys DeHart, Cedar Falls. 200 free relay, Cedar Falls, Sam Whelan, or Sam Weaver, Kieran DeGroot, John Butler, and Cole Wilson. The 100 back, William Fry, Dubuque Sr., Alex Englehart, Cedar Falls. In the 100 breaststroke, Cole Wilson, Cedar Falls, Sam Weaver, Cedar Falls. In the 400 relay, Cedar Falls, Kieran DeGroot, Liam McGrain, Cole Wilson, and John Butler. Swimmer of the Year, John Butler, Cedar Falls. Coach of the Year, Cliff Paulson, Cedar Falls. On the second team, 200 medley relay, Cedar Falls, Alex Englehart, Sam Weaver, Peyton Riggins, Jack Considine. In the 200 free, Keys DeHart, Cedar Cedar Falls, Shepherd West, Cedar Rapids Jefferson. The 200 IM, Jack Considine, Cedar Falls, Alex Englehart, Cedar Falls. 50 free, Brady Hartsock, Cedar Falls, Walter Freund, Dubuque Sr. The 100 fly, Peyton Riggins, Cedar Falls, Brady Hartsock, Cedar Falls. The 100 free, Kieran DeGroot, Cedar Falls, Walter Freund, Dubuque Sr. In the 500 free, Jack Considine, Cedar Falls, Shepherd West, Cedar Rapids, Jefferson. In the 200 free relay, Dubuque Sr., Walter Freund, Cole Marshall, Duncan Freund, Jack Heyer. 100 back, Owen Drail, Cedar Falls, Peyton Rigging, Riggins, Cedar Falls. In the 100 breaststroke, Zach Heyer, Dubuque Sr., Duncan Freund, Dubuque Sr. In the 400 free relay, Dubuque Sr., Jarrett Herber, Cole Marshall, Duncan Freund, and William Fry. From the Iowa Today page, Democrats target Eastern Iowa District National Party to Aid Bohannon as part of an effort to retake the House by Tom Barton. National Democrats have targeted an Eastern Iowa Congressional District in their quest to regain control of the U.S. House in this fall's elections. The campaign arm of U.S. House Democrats announced Monday that Iowa City Congressional candidate Christina Bohannon has been named to its Red to Blue program that works to help Democrats running against Republican incumbents flip control of competitive districts. The announcement was reported by NBC News. 
Bohannon is among Iowa's Democrats' first slate of 17 candidates given the stamp of approval from the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, sending a signal to donors and activists about whom they see as best positioned to win in critical districts. Also named to the list is Lannon Bacham, a Democrat running for Congress in Iowa's 3rd Congressional District, which is represented by Representative U.S. Representative Zach Nunn of Bondurant. He's serving in his first term and narrowly defeated Democrat incumbent Cindy Axney in 2022 to win the seat that has flipped in two of the last three elections. Melissa Vine, a Des Moines nonprofit leader, also is running at the Democratic, in that Democratic primary. House Republicans control a razor thin majority of the chamber holding 219 seats to Democrats 213. The Democrats' red-to-blue program arms the party's top-tier candidates with organizational and fundraising support, and the National Committee provides strategic guidance, staff resources, candidate training, and more. Bohannon, a University of Iowa law professor and former state representative, is making her second bid for Iowa's first congressional district, which covers 20 counties in southeast Iowa, including Johnson County. She is challenging Republican U.S. Representative Marionette Miller-Meeks of Ottumwa. Bohannon lost by nearly seven percentage points, or more than 20,000 votes, to Miller-Meeks in 2022, who won re-election to a second term in November after winning her first election by the slimmest of margins, six votes, over Democrat Rita Hart in 2022. Abortion, a key issue. Bohannon and the DCCC say they plan to highlight Miller Meek's record against abortion rights, including support of a nationwide abortion ban. Miller Meeks has said she supports a national 15-week ban on abortion with exceptions for rape, incest, and the life of the mother. She also co-sponsored the Life at Conception Act, which would criminalize abortion, but would not allow the woman having the procedure to be prosecuted. It has no exceptions for rape, incest, or the woman's life. As a doctor, I believe that every life is precious and should be protected, Miller Meeks said in a video posted to X, formerly Twitter, earlier this month. Speaking to reporters in August after a town hall in Iowa, where she fielded questions about women's reproductive rights, she criticized Democrats, who she said voted for a bill that would legalize abortion up to birth. Shortly before the U.S. Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade, which provided a federally protected right to abortion, Democrats in Congress introduced a bill that would allow abortion after a fetus is viable outside the womb in cases where the patient's life or health is at risk. Republicans claim that the bill would allow abortion on demand up to the moment of birth. Democrats counter that's not what they support and that such a scenario is exceedingly rare. Bohannon told the Gazette she supports a return to Roe v. Wade. I believe that we need to put Roe v. Wade back into federal law where it was before the Supreme Court overruled it, she said. You know, Roe v. Wade was the compromise. It was the balance. It recognized a right to an abortion. 
and recognize that women need to have the freedom and the privacy to make some of the most difficult and personal decisions that anyone will ever make. But it also did not allow the state to regulate abortion as the pregnancy progresses, and it is a balanced approach. It was the compromise. We need to return to that. I support Roe, no more, no less. Fundraising totals. Bohannon also has pledged to make passing a farm bill among her top priorities if elected to represent Iowa in Congress. She held a roundtable discussion last week in Walcott with a dozen farmers, rural landowners, and a former state USDA official. Lawmakers in Washington failed to pass a farm bill before the end of the year. Instead, Congress extended the former bill for an additional year. Bohannon's campaign announced raising more than $650,000 in the most recent fundraising quarter, bringing her total contributions to $1.3 million since she launched her bid in August. According to the most recent Federal Election Commission filings, Miller-Meek raised more than $1.8 million this election cycle and had nearly $1.4 million cash on hand as of the end of September. She had not yet announced her campaign donations for the final fundraising quarter of 2023. In the top weather story, gaining daylight. It's been over a month since the winter solstice, and we are slowly but surely gaining daylight. Today, the sun rose at 7.22 a.m. and will set at 5.19 p.m. for a total of 9 hours, 58 minutes, and 49 seconds of daylight. On the winter solstice, Cedar Rapids had only 9 hours, 7 minutes, and 7 seconds of daylight. Since then, we have gained 49 minutes and 52 seconds of daylight. On the spring equinox, the sun will rise at 7.10 a.m. and set at 7.18 p.m., for a total of 12 hours, 7 minutes, and 44 seconds of daylight. This means that between now and the spring equinox, Cedar Rapids will gain more than 2 hours of daylight. Getting a feel for college. Registration is open for Cornell's High School One Course Summer Institute. In Mount Vernon, high school students can immerse themselves in a class and earn college credit this summer at Cornell College's One Course Summer Institute. Seven courses will be offered by Cornell professors from July 7th to 24th. Some course options are 17 Days Later, Zombies, Brains, and Basic Neuroscience, Chemistry and the Kitchen, Explorations in Engineering, Drawing, and a Writer's Workshop. Rising senior, Juniors or Seniors by June 2024 or 2024 high school graduates are eligible for the program. Online registration is open through June 17th at cornellcollege.edu slash OCSI. We're excited to see what the next class of One Course Summer Institute scholars will do in these fascinating courses, said Franny Malone, organizer of the Summer Institute and lecturer in the Department of Kinesiology. We work with our Cornell professors to plan several different courses so students could take what interests them. These classes will no doubt challenge and inspire. Students will earn three college credit hours that can be applied to Cornell or another college, earn a $4,000 Cornell scholarship awarded $1,000 annually, 
enjoy several fun events in Mount Vernon and Eastern Iowa, participate in college prep workshops, and live on campus and get a feel for the residence halls and dining experience. Stephen Ness, Cornell Associate Professor of Psychology, teaches courses in neuroscience during the academic year. His summer institute course, 17 Days Later, Zombies, Brains, and Basic Neuroscience, focuses on using Hollywood-depicted zombies to understand the living brain. Students learn all about how to organize notes for college-level work, how to integrate readings and data from class activities to develop critical thinking skills, and learn how to balance work and fun on a college campus, Nice said in a news release. Overall, students will learn that with a little bit of adjustment, college success will be theirs. Things to do today, free at the um, History Grantwood Country Forum, another chapter in the Cedar Rapids Public Library's eight-week Zoom series devoted to sparking conversation, curiosity, and creative writing related to Iowa's iconic artist Grant Wood and the land he painted. 6.30 to 8 p.m. Register online at events.crlibrary.org backslash event backslash 94995144. Cost free games music bingo. Bingo combined with name that tune. Instead of calling out numbers, hear parts of a song. If you know the song title, mark that square. 7 to 9 p.m. at Dharma's 5898 Main Street, Troy Mills. And free activities at the Senior Social Hour. Come for socialization, coffee activities, travel documentaries, 10 to 11 a.m. at the Marion Public Library. Lawmakers seek greater notice, greater say, notice when laws are challenged. With recent cases at the Iowa Supreme Court and justices' comments in mind, State House Republicans have proposed multiple legislative changes that would allow them greater access to the judicial process when a state law is challenged. Plaintiffs who claim in court that a state law is unconstitutional would have to notify the Iowa legislature under a legislative proposal that Republican state lawmaker advanced Monday at the Iowa Capitol. Last week, lawmakers moved a separate proposal that would allow legislative leaders to file file briefs in state court proceedings over laws passed by the legislature without needing permission from the court. Several new state laws passed by the Republican-majority Iowa legislature have been challenged in state and federal courts as unconstitutional, including laws regarding abortion, sexual material in school books, undercover video recording on agricultural property, and first right of refusal for utility companies in project bids, which two electric transmission companies call anti-competitive. Iowa Supreme Court justices, in their writing arguments in the utility case, cited lawmakers' floor debate. Some Republican lawmakers felt the justices misconstrued their remarks during debate. During Monday's hearing on the proposal to require notice to the Iowa legislature when the constitutionality of a state law is challenged, Senator Mike Busselot, a Republican from Ankeny, said he believes the proposed legislation legislation would add transparency to the judicial system without adding significant burden to the parties involved. Ultimately, we've seen 
that there's greater and greater emphasis on the constitutionality and, frankly, the intent of what that legislature is doing and when we do it, Booslot said. And if that question of intent and what the legislature is doing is going to be questioned and reviewed so thoroughly throughout the process, I think having that same body, having notification and knowledge that the, those questions exist, would be impactful and beneficial to the parties to the suit, as well as to the legislature as a whole, and frankly, is worth the benefit to the state of Iowa. Busselot and Republican Senator Jason Schultz, a Republican from Schleswig, signed off on advancing the proposal, Senate Study Bill 3098, to the full Senate Judiciary Committee. That's the same committee that also will be will consider the proposal to allow legislators to file briefs when a state law is challenged in the state courts. That proposal, Senate Study Bill 3099, passed its first legislative step last week. During a hearing on that proposal, Senator Dan Dawson, a Republican from Council Bluffs, said the bill would allow legislators to make clear their case for the legislation. What's proposed here is just an ability for us to have our voice and maybe clarify the actual legislative intent if there is some discrepancy there based on what gets cherry-picked on videos, Dawson said. The proposal received bipartisan support, Dawson, Booselot, and Senator Nate Bolton, a Democrat from Des Moines and a lawyer, all signed off on advancing that bill. And that does it for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette on Iris. I've been your reader, Denise. You can access today's reading online at iowaradioreading.org. Thank you for listening and have a great day.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. Since the dawn of humankind, people have used caves to explore, hold religious ceremonies, create art, or avoid the dangers of weather and predators. Partly because of that, they continue to fascinate scientists today. To create a cave, Mother Nature needs three things. Water, rock that can be dissolved by it, and lots of time. Rainwater, as it falls through the atmosphere, picks up carbon from CO2 to become a weak carbonic acid. By the time it hits Earth, it's about as acidic as coffee. As it percolates through the soil, it picks up more carbon from decaying plants, becoming a slightly stronger acid. If the rock below the soil is limestone, gypsum, or dolomite, the water can dissolve along tiny cracks. Over many thousands of years, the cracks become channels, then tunnels, and could eventually become caverns. Water might also mix with hydrogen sulfide gas seeping up. Roxanne Watson is on a mission. Hello, how are you doing today? She wants more people to register as organ, eye, and tissue donors. Are you an organ donor? Yes, I am. Yay. My goal is to sign up the most people in the United States. <laughs> what drives her? Roxanne's own life was saved through the gift of a heart transplant, made possible by an organ donor. I decided that day that I was going to devote myself to the cause of organ donation and signing people up and honoring my donor by doing that. Now she's back to health, and she's a powerful force, helping to save lives every day through her work. Imagine what you can make possible by leaving behind the gift of life. Eight people can be helped with the major organs, and up to 50 people can be helped with a little bit of everything. And when you think about it that way, that you could help that many people, it's amazing, it really is. Learn more and sign up as an organ, eye, and tissue donor. Go to organdonor.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration.